You getting this, Connolly? It's Jim Wagon back to put you right. You goddamn house dweller. I just want to say to you, you think it's funny? You think it's funny to call people caveman over and over again, caveating this, caveating that. But you just say it again, caveman, caveman. I tell you what, that sparked something inside my brain and I never wanted to go back there again. Thank you, Connolly, you goddamn house dweller. Before I was slapped so jam wagon, they called me the caveman. And I used to live in a cave. That's what you gotta do to get in the right place. And I tell you what, I gotta respect for the cave people. I gotta respect for them and you better watch out, Connolly. Otherwise me and the cave folk are gonna come around your house and flatten it all down. Well, pop yourself a beer or a cold libation. Let me tell you how I wrote this little theme. I went and took a call from brother Jason, and he tells me that he has a little dream. He says he needs a backwards intro to begin his podcast, and I ask him what you got. He said I'll start off with some talking and some movie clips of popcorn, fighting fantasy explorations and some groundless exploitation. Kickstarts that I'm watching and some blind unboxings, full month horror movie marathon. Sometimes I let the box come on, contest, and of course you know it's all about games. That's a slowdown. Let's just start with the name. It's the Nerds. With the other Jason. Welcome back to Nerds RPG Variety Cast. I'm your host, Jason. Today I've got session recaps and a bunch of great listener calls ranging from everything from counter spells to the granularity of attributes to spoilers in games. Uh, we talk about Cyberpunk 2020 some. In fact, if you're interested in joining a sporadic Cyberpunk 2020 game, reach out to me. Also, we talk a little bit about... See, I'm a Looney Tunes character. We talk a little bit about the Morrow Project, which... Funny enough, I couldn't pronounce in the segment either. Um, we follow up on our segment on how to be metal with another caller with advice. And, yeah, there's just a bunch of neat stuff here. Carl calls in about violent TV shows, all kinds of stuff. So, let's get into the show. Session recap. Reaver. I apologize in advance. I'm driving to work in the van using my earbuds or AirPods or whatever you call them to record this. So there's probably more noise and road noise and things in the background. I kind of ran out of time and actually I'm running late for work today, which is one of the reasons I took the van because everything with a motorcycle takes just a little bit longer. You put the gear on, you got to check the stuff on the motorcycle. When you get gas, it takes longer. Because Anyway, long story. Point is, I'm driving the van and I'm recording this in the van. Reaver is the upcoming sword and sorcery game from Raven Guy Games. And of course, that's Joe Salvador. It, the quick start for Reaver is going to be out on Drive Through RPG here in the next few weeks. And when it comes out, I'll definitely let you know I've got something special in store for you when it comes out, when the quick start comes out, in conjunction with that. But until then, I'm going to share a playtest session with you. I'm not going to go really in depth in the rules because they're still being tweaked a little bit. You know, you'll see them when the quick start comes out. But effectively, it's an OSR game 
but it has some really neat tweaks to it. There is a dice chain system, and there is also a pool of points. We're tentatively using the term resolved during the playtest. I don't know if that'll be the final name. Where you can spend those points to do cool things with your character. And then each, each class has different cool things they can do with resolve. Some things everybody can do and some things are class specific. And it really dives into the sword and sorcery tropes, and you're trying to play big heroes and sword and sorcery effectively. Right? There is magic in the game, but magic is dangerous and kind of slow to cast. Spell disruption is definitely a danger in this game. Uh, like I say, it's still under playtests, and probably there'll be disruption, uh, or, or you'll be able to interrupt like archers, you know, missile weapons. So if you act before an archer and, sh and, and plan to strike on them, it'll it'll keep them from firing their bow that round or We'll take a negative, things like that. Um, all, all that's still kind of being tweaked. So I'm not going to really talk about mechanics, but I'm just going to give you kind of a narrative overview of this session. So Joe Salvador was a DM. I was playing. Carl Rodriguez, the Geomologist Presents podcast, is playing. And another gentleman was playing. who's a great role player, and, and you may have heard him here or there. I don't know, but I don't have permission to use his name, and he doesn't have a podcast to my knowledge, so I'm not going to mention his name. So let's talk about the, well, let's talk about characters first. My character is Brutus the Bald. And in Reaver, you have your standard sword sorcery world, and it ties into the same tropes and kind of nations you see in Conan and in these stories. So there's a cross-reference there, so you can play a bunch of different ethnic types. Pretty much everybody's human, but you might get, you know, different ethnicities, lean different ways, but you can pretty much do anything with anybody, I think. My character is like a, a, a Thracian, and he's kind of a Greek-Roman kind of guy. And Carl Rodriguez is playing a shaman. And I forget what part of the world he's in, and again, I'm driving in the van, which I, I know I'm letting you down here. But anyway, he's playing a shaman, and he's currently on his year-long walkabout. And he's hooked up with my character and this other character. And, and the other character's fighter type, but he's kind of a brutish fighter type. And he's kind of lowbrow and, you know, he'll be like a caravan guard, but also, you know, not feel bad if they kind of steal from the people in the caravan. Oh, I, I don't know if I mentioned, my character's rogue. Brutus is rogue, but he's more of a thuggish rogue. And so your characters, they get careers and the different classes have different careers and those careers give you different abilities. So my initial ability is because I'm part of the th local thieves guild, part of the local mob. I, I have connections in the city and connections within the mob, and I can talk to people and know things about the area and stuff like that. But like I said, I built more of a. I, I can do thieving stuff. I you know I can climb walls and move silently and lockpick and find traps and all that stuff. But I'm like I say I'm more of a heavy. So my boss is into extortion rackets and he runs caravans of stolen goods, things like that. And I'm kind of the guy who sends to break people's kneecaps and whatnot. So the three of us are hanging out in our local city, in the city I'm from. And it's a walled city with a king. And it's surrounded by some other nations. Carl's nation, his shaman's nation is not too, too far away. And... We're hanging out kind of in the local tavern drink house establishment, and we're outside on the patio enjoying a few adult beverages. 
in the afternoon. Near us are the public baths, and there's a debate going on. And one side is a, a Thracian, a, a lady, and I, darn, I don't have the notes with me, but um, Tiberia was her name. And then Mirko was the other person debating her. So Mirko, who was a native of the city, was saying that the Thracians should all leave the city. They don't belong there. They're a blight on the city. And the background, if I remember this story right, is the Thracian Empire had expanded, taken the city as part of it at one point, and now it's contracted. But a lot of Thracians stayed in the area, and there are a lot of Thracians that were born in the city. And so the city is like, you know, mixed ethnicity. Well, he's arguing they need to kind of cleanse that and get rid of the Thracians out of the city, even though it's you know been a while since it's not been Thracian controlled. So he's arguing to get rid of the Thracians. She's arguing, well, the Thracians live here. They want to be here. Some are born here. They belong here. So they're having this argument, and it's getting heated. And every time she makes a good argument, you know, Brutus is raising because he's Thracian. He's, although born in the city, he's raising his mug, cheering, yeah, you tell him. And then he mentions that a, a spy had just been arrested who was reporting to an enemy of the city, this warlord that's, you know, an enemy of the city. And the spy that he mentions is actually a friend of Brutus's that Brutus's boss had hired at times because he's, you know, a pretty good lockpicker, pretty good, like a safe cracker, effectively, but sword sorcery stuff. And so my buddy goes, hey, do you know that guy? Isn't that your buddy? I said, yeah, but he's no spy. I'll have to ask the boss about that later. And then, so Mirko has some thugs with him. And Thracia, or I'm sorry, Tiberia has some bodyguards as well. So the, one of the thugs points over to me and says, there, there's another Thracian. I bet you he's another spy. And he's pointing at me. And and, and then they start pointing at the, the fighter type that's with me and, and saying, and him, he's a Thracian lover. And, you know, trying to rally us up. And, and, and Marco looks over, he sees me, and um, we lock eyes, and, and, he, and he says, yes, yes, there's another one. He's probably a spy, too. And I stand up and give him whatever the vulgar gesture is in that city and, and, and tell him if he wants to make some of it, he can come over here. And his guards start coming towards us, so we stand up, and the, the fighter type with us has a spear with him, and I'm trying to think. I think that the shaman also has a spear, and I have a club. And I'm not wearing armor or don't have a shield with me because, you know, we're just hanging out in the city. Uh, our fighter type has his armor on but doesn't have a shield with him. But he does have a spear with him. So, you know, I put my hand on my club, you know, old slugger, and, and we're standing there, and they start coming towards us. And somebody at some point throws a punch, and a big street brawl breaks out. Well, the first round, and again, I'm not going to go into mechanics, but the, the game mechanics work really well for this brawl. The, it, it's a really neat system. You can use that pool of, of resolve to aid your initiative. You can use it to have a better chance to hit, better chance to do damage. But you only have a limited amount, and then you regenerate... A, a random amount each night. So you might not always fully recover each night after you sleep. And you want to save your resolve because you can also do, use it for things like um, avoid, uh, not avoid death. Well, avoiding death, I forget what the term is. 
but basically if you get killed, you if you have enough resolve left, like it was eight resolve, you can use that to instead of die, you know, come back, but you'll lose some resolve permanent permanently lose some from your fate pool each time you you, you avoid death. So eventually you, you'll be out of luck if you keep avoiding death. And it's better than I'm making a sound. Anyhow, just to talk about the combat narratively, the first round, one of the thugs come he is going towards my buddy is the fighter. He he just strides towards him. He's waving a spear in front of him. Like, hey, get out of here. Get out of here. Uh, the shaman is standing there just trying to get it. He's saying, oh, can't we all talk this down? Because he's, unlike us, he's not a thug. He's, like, kind-hearted. And I think he's trying to, and he's a purist. And, and you know, he's into, um, you know, the, the natural world and, and, and your body and, you know, being in good shape and, and balance the mind to body, all this kind of thing. And he's saying, oh, let us all talk about this. We don't need to fight. And, and I've just got, and now I've got my club over my shoulders, you know, kind of just standing there like, come on. And one of these thugs is approaching me as well, although he's still a little bit far, a little bit off, the one coming towards me. Well, that first round, our, my fighter buddy is just waving his, his spear, telling them to ward off. The guy he's fighting, when it comes to his turn, tries to stab him with the dag, or tries to punch at him, and he misses. The shaman nobody messes with. It, it might be part of the wolf headdress he has on his head, too. The wolf head on top of his head. People might not want to mess with him. And then, even though one of the bodyguards is coming towards me, before he gets to me, one of the drunk patrons in the bar takes a swing at me. Well, again, my guy's a, a thug. And, you know, his reputation's important. His ego is important to him. So this guy takes a swing at him, but he rolls a fumble. So he doesn't connect with me. And he actually slips and falls in front of me. So I have a choice. Do I move forward and engage the bodyguard of Mirko? Or do I curb stomp this guy that just took a swing at me? Well, this is my city. I've got a reputation. So I take a round to curb stomp this drunk bar patron. Because, you know, he, he shouldn't be taking a swing at me. Next round... We were, we're engaging with these guys. I managed to take take the guy I'm fighting now. He takes a swing at me, misses, and I kneecap him with the with the club, and he, he drops down, which I, I, I did a special move to knock him down, and we just narratively said I did it with the club. Um, the same thing with with my fighter buddy. He takes a spear, and he, he sweeps the guy's legs out from under him with a spear. Nobody's trying to kill anybody at this point. We're doing some dual damage. And it, it knocks him to the ground. And I, I don't remember if somebody took a swing at Carl Shaman or not yet. But, oh, no, no. The Shaman's starting to get ready to cast a spell. And now we see, now that we've taken two of their guys down, these other two bodyguards start coming at us, and they pull out daggers. They're, they're serious. So the dagger guys engage us. They never managed to connect with me, the one I'm fighting, but I but I managed to thonk him on the head with my club and knock him out. The one fighting my buddy does manage to stab him and do a fair bit of damage to him, at which point he goes into a rage and, and he just shoves his spear right in the guy's neck, spurting blood everywhere. You know, he slumps down and, and he, he, he takes spear and then he shrugs him off the spear so he slumps onto a table. Blood spurting on the patrons. People are screaming. This is the first, you know, real death, or the first death in the combat that, that I know of. Um, 
And, and somebody does swing at Carl, and Carl takes him out. Oh, no, Carl casts a spell at this point. Carl casts a sleep spell. Or he tries to, and he fails the first time he tries to cast a spell. Then the second time he casts it, it works. But because he can't control who exactly falls asleep, it does knock out five of Mercury's bodyguards, and then a bunch of bar patrons also fall asleep. But the guys in Daggers we were fighting didn't fall asleep. And neither did Mirko or Tiberia. So we, we've got one guy on the ground dead. You know, one of the Mirko's bodyguards speared through the neck. Um, I've taken down a couple. The shaman sees that a couple of Mirko's bodyguards, the daggers, are creeping up on Tiberia. It looks like they're going to try to assassinate her. So he rushes over there, body checks one into a wall, knocking him you know, a little bit senseless, but, but the guy's still up. And the other guy's going towards Tiberia. The guy, Carl, body checked into the wall, stabs Carl in the gut and, and gets him really good. He actually knocks him down to zero hit points. So Carl flops on the ground. The guy trying to stab Tiberia, one of her bodyguards jumps in the way and takes the blow. So she's safe at the moment. I rush over there and just you know, I, I, I knocked down the guy that stabbed Carl, and then I spent around beating him to death. Um, just on the ground, just, you, you, you know, bludgeoning, you know, just whacking the skull with the club. And then our, our fighter buddy, because everybody's, like, scared of him now that he's killed somebody, they're all, like, moving away from him. He's trying to get to us, like, hey, we got to get out of here. In this game, once you get zero hit points, you drop on the ground, you're unconscious. But until somebody rolls the body over, either at the end of the combat or somebody takes a, a round during the combat, we don't know their status. So Carl's kind of in limbo right now. Now we hear whistles. The city guard is coming. And, and we, we see them coming, so the so it looks like Tiberia's going to be safe. We have to get out of there anyway because my buddy's got this bloody spear. So I roll Carl, and I'm finished, you know, pounding this guy to death. So... I roll Carl over, and he fails his death save. At this point, now, I didn't mention, in this game, rogues are like kind of like DCC, halflings, and thieves, where they can share their resolve. So Carl didn't have enough resolve left to cheat death. But I was able to loan him some resolve for my character, so he could cheat death. So Carl cheated death, which means his permanent resolve pulls lowered a little bit. So each time, he gets harder to cheat death. Um, and we talked after the session about maybe we'll do some, whether we're going to add scars or something like that. But that's still kind of up in here. And it might be an optional rule. But I'm able to roll Carl over. He's able to, to, to get up. And, and we get out of there. As we get out of there, we see some of the city guards surround Mirko and actually stab him to death. And, now, and Mirko's followers go crazy. And, and a riot breaks out. So we hightail back to my place. And... And, and I get them holed up in my place. We, we do some first aid. Carl has some healing magic. He's able to heal himself and, and, and heal our buddy. I go over talk to my... I, I leave them in my place. I sneak through the city, go to my boss, hook up with him, talk to him about it. And he's a mid-level boss. And he says, yeah, your buddy that was locked up definitely is not a spy. I don't know what's going on. Um, but, you, you know, you might want to lay low for a while. And I told him we were thinking about, you know, leaving the city. He said, yeah, that's probably a good idea. And I told him how Mirko was killed by the city guard. He said, oh, that's not good. You might not know this, but Mirko was actually secretly in cahoots with this warlord outside the city that, that they were saying our buddy was spying for. 
So I'm like, crap. And, and there are riots in the city, buildings are burning, stuff like that. So I am sneaking back to my place and I'm going by the front gate and I see soldiers up on the front gate, but they're not looking into the city of the riots. They're looking out, outward. So I call out, I, I spend a resolve point. So I know one of these guys, you know, activate my building, knowing people in the city and having contacts and all. And I know one of the soldiers. So he says, yeah, buddy, come on up here, Brutus. Look at this. And I get up on the wall and I see this warlord and his army out in the field in front of the city, getting ready to invade. I'm like, oh shit, the city's about to get sacked. So I run back to my boss. I, I give him a heads up, you know, cause I'm a loyal thug. And then I run back to my place and tell my friends, time to go. We got to grab our shit and get out of here. The city's about to get sacked. And that's where we ended the session. And the next session, we're going to have to escape the city. And what we'll probably do is we're going to maybe do the normal advancement, a couple levels then we're going to jump ahead a few levels. And that way we're play testing various high levels and all. And Joe's been, I've actually, we've been play testing Reaver for a couple of years now, and it's gone through different rules iterations. You know, Darren Green has been involved in playtests. Colin Green has been involved in playtests. A lot of people have been in these playtests. And, and it's a really good system. And like I say, I'll talk about it more here in the future. And, I, and next time I do a session recap, I won't be in my van driving. So I'll be able to tell you character names and stuff. I really am sorry about that. But it was a really fun session. And the mechanics really supported what we did mechanically. And they didn't get in the way. They were kind of out of the way. And we were able to role play all this stuff. And at the same time, had this great friggin' street fight, and it, it was really fun. So the spells work really neat, and I like how the magic, like, he had some control, but Carl's just a low-level shaman, so he didn't have a lot of control over who fell asleep and things like that, which is interesting. The And the higher level he gets, of course, the more maybe control he has over his magic, but all magic here is kind of tainted with evil to some degree, so it's, it's kind of dangerous. Um, maybe Carl will talk more about that. Is Carl, I haven't read all the magic rules because some of the stuff Joe just sent to Carl, because again, it's still in draft form. Um, so Carl might talk about that, or once the playtest comes out, we'll talk about it more. Once the, the quick start kit, I mean, comes out, we'll talk about it more. So that's all I'm going to say about Reaver. Great game. Definitely look forward. We're going to play, we're playing bi weekly, so look forward to future updates on that. And I do have another game I want to talk about a session recap for. So let's talk about. Ash. Session recap for Astonishing Swordsman and Sorcerer's Hyboria. Arlen Walker, live from Pelham's Wasteland, ran another session of Ash for us. The other players include Che Webster, Roleplay Rescue, Carl Rodriguez of Jim Ellis Presents. Um, Darren Green is in there. You've heard, also known as Arfed, you've heard him on various podcasts. And we have another player who I don't believe has a podcast and I haven't heard on podcasts. So I don't want to mention his game, name in case he wants to stay anonymous. But we had, if you've been following the saga of, of that story, we're, we're they're on an island investigating, exploring this island. And we're currently at a tomb that has three sarcophagi in it. In previous adventure, we found an undead ape man in the tomb. So it's now daylight and we want to, we want to try to pop open one of these sarcophagi and see what's in there. So we kind of hemmed and hauled and talked about our plan, and we decided we we're going to hook rope, use hook, rope and grappling hook and whatnot to, because the, the tomb wasn't very deep into this cave. So we hooked, hooked up the tackle to the 
one of the sarcophagi, and we built up a fire in the center, center kind of as a block, and we all went outside the cave, well, except for Che Webster's um, pyromancer who stood inside the cave, cave mouth, and we, the two barbarians, or I'm sorry, two berserkers pulled the lid off the sarcophagi, our other two characters were ready with missile weapons, and Che's wizard was there at the opening. So we pull it off, the lid off, and up rises a wraith. And we can tell it's kind of incorporeal. And of course, we don't have any magic weapons or silvered weapons, really, or anything like that. Actually, Chase's character starts with a silver dagger, but he didn't realize that because he hadn't written down the <laughs> equipment. And I don't say that to make fun of Che. I didn't write down my, my beginning pack equipment my character started with either. So, um, you know, I'm not necessarily making fun of him at all. But, but so we... So this wraith rises up and it comes up, it kind of stops at the fire and the fire held it back for a round and then it used an ability to extinguish the fire and then it moved up to the cave mouth. During this time, Chase shoots a flame bolt at it that does some damage to it. Um, Carl hits it with a flame bolt that does some damage to it. The He, he sets his bolts up, you know, so they're like flaming crossbow bolts. And our, our other character, our, our hunter, Huntsman threw a flaming bolo at it, but unfortunately missed. The Chase ready to cat, and then both of the berserkers are standing outside with with torches. Because as soon as we saw the, it took damage from a flaming bolt, which was the first thing to hit it. We, we knew we'd need flame to hurt it, so we were standing out there with with flaming torches. Because the crossbow bolt just went right through it, but where the flame touched the wraith, it kind of burned it away a little bit. So we could tell that that was what, the flame is what did the damage. Uh, the The next round, Che was going to shoot a, another flame bolt and then move out, but he, we lost initiative, and the wraith moves up and swiped Che, doing quite a bit of damage to him. So on his next on the next phase, Che moved out of there. He just withdrew, so he didn't get to fire that turn. Um, Mike. Let's see. We anyway, we we went through. We we tried different things. Carl tried hitting it with some coins when he ran out of flaming bolts, and he found the silver. And some of the coins did injure it. Um, but what we ended up doing because it wouldn't come out in the sunlight, it just stayed there at the edge of the cave. Is our other player had the wonderful idea. The one I mentioned his name. He had the wonderful idea of of trying to reflect light on this thing, kind of like you would, you know, use a a mirror or your glasses or something to reflect light onto an ant to burn it. Well, he wanted to reflect light directly onto this thing. And he tried to use a coin. Then Carl remembered he had a, a mirror in his thieves toolkit, small one. So they got that and concentrated the light on it, reflected light. Cause it's, you know, daytime is the morning and, and that, and that destroyed it, which was great. So we said, okay, well let's do this again. So we, we set up on the second, sarcophagi and rinse repeat and destroyed it the same way and then the third sarcophagi we went to do it and we couldn't pull the lid off the lid was stuck on there and we couldn't we weren't sure why and at this time che was pretty badly wounded and carl's character was pretty badly wounded from the previous session so we decided we would just head back to and we there's a ton of gold a ton of treasure including an invisibility ring that the wizard took so there's a and there was a a silver torque arm arm band arm ring that my my character took because he's kind of kelp, and now that's got 
writing, like in the Serpent People writings on it. So we'll see if that comes back to bite me in the butt down the road. But we took all of our loot back to town, cashed it in. Everybody, I think everybody leveled up. I know I leveled up. Um, everybody had a ton of money. One of my character's motivations is his sister's still a slave, and he's trying to buy her freedom. So he sent 650 gold back to, you know, with a merchant, paying the merchant 10%. But he sent 650 gold back to try to pay towards his sister's freedom. But we re-equipped and headed back into headed back the next day to take on this third sarcophagi that we couldn't get the lid off. We brought like a, a, a big war hammer to act like a, um, you know, like a sledgehammer and things like that. Um, and, and people got like silver wet, silver arrows, silver daggers. And, um, you know, we just bought some other equipment. So we head back. And when we get back to the cave, there's a group of eight men outside the cave and they had heard us coming up. So we didn't surprise them. Um, so our two berserkers, mine and Darren, move out and get their attention while the thief and, and the, the huntsman kind of sneak around the corners of the wood to, to stay hidden and Chase character stay back a little bit as pyromancer. And and so we were going to charge them, but they, they won initiative and they charged us first and they attacked. And my berserker was able to, to block their blows, but Darren took some damage. And at that point, Darren decided to go berserk and, and we took out all there were like maybe there were two alpha eight men and they're like six subordinate eight men i think or eight, either four or six subordinates and we took them out in like two rounds <laughs> so so we we just decimated or we you know we decimated them um that it went really quickly um luckily and then because darren was berserk he had to make a roll to see if he would continue to attack the bodies or attack his friends and luckily he he rolled that he would continue to attack the bodies. So while he turned one of the bodies into mush, we looted the rest of the bodies. And then he came out of it and we investigated the cave and we saw that the lid was slight. We had put the lids on the two scruff guy. We looted back on those lids were off and the other one was slightly ajar now. So it looks like we interrupted those eight men when we came back. So we, we slid that lid, lid off or to the side at least and saw that in that sarcophagi, the last one, there wasn't actually a tomb. It wasn't actually a, a sarcophagi. It was an entrance and steps going down into, you know, underground. And, and we stopped the session at that point. Uh, we had spent a fair amount of the session when we we're back in town leveling up and buying kit and stuff like that. But all in all, it was a great session. And, and the idea of using initially the coin to reflect light on this wraith to try to damage it and then using the mirror to do it was genius that really exemplifies the idea of player skill and when you talk about old school play style and osr play style nowhere on the character sheet you know would you see an ability reflect light or something like that right this player just came up with this off his head it was you know the kind of thing that you know you're thinking outside the box what might work and you just throw it out there and to his credit arlen rolled with it and you know that but to me that is old school play trying things like that you know you're facing this opponent that you really probably shouldn't be able to beat but because you're thinking outside the box and coming up with interesting solutions you're able to overcome these things so really really great session who's on the phone 
who's on the phone? Who's on the phone? Who's on the phone? Well, maybe it's your auntie or a joke put by your spouse, but the operator screaming is coming from inside the house. First up is a call from Paul because it's about beer and, well, beer is life. Hey, Jason, Paul here. Just a quick correction. You said that Carl was calling in to defend beer when, in fact, Carl was calling in to defend malt beverages with fruit. Okay, so I will allow that carve-out exception for lambics, uh, but quite frankly... The first time somebody said, you know, this IPA tastes like grapefruit, therefore it would be even better if we put an actual grapefruit in it, was the time when everything went wrong. And from there, it's not long till you've fallen into the hell of passion fruit. And now you have to check every single label to see if the adjectives are descriptions of taste or if they are painfully, distressingly literal mentions of ingredients. Hey, Paul, great catch. You're right. I misspoke. Carl was not defending real beer, and he should feel very badly about that. Next caller is Joe Richter, the Hindsightless Podcast. Damn, dude. You absolutely shredded Morkborg, dude. Calling it the tap-out t-shirts of gaming? That's maybe the worst thing anything could ever be. And then saying you'd buy it at Spencer's Gift. While I love Spencer's Gifts, I totally get what you you were saying, man. Holy crap. Nice, dude. (laughs) The tap-out t-shirt of gaming. (laughs) To be clear, Joe, Morkborg's interesting there's some cool ideas in there like i say i would totally use some of the tables out of the game but just the aesthetic and the way it's presented and all that i i mean that's the image i get i don't know but to be be fair i didn't come up with that term on my own i i read that on a private discord where somebody wrote that 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 was their impression i'm not going to name who that is because i don't necessarily want them to get a negative um you know, I don't want people to think bad of that person who posted that, but I think it nailed it. So, yeah, I like I say, there's definitely good stuff to pull out in Morkborg. I'm not down on the game. I just don't think I would, like Carl says, he would pick up and run Morkborg, which might be interesting to do for a game, and, and I'd be down to try it, definitely. But to me, it's more just a collection of ideas and tables that I'll pull from, and it's more of a coffee table art book than an RPG where Viking Death Squad is, the intent is an RPG that you're really going to run. And it's not, you, you know, some weird art project. And, and it's not trying to be trendy. You know, Morkborg, I'd have to go back and look at the book. I've got a hard copy of it. Um, I'm pretty, you know, Morkborg sells itself as, as heavy metal. And I heard somebody on a podcast at some point say, beware of things that call themselves metal. I don't think Viking Death Squad calls itself metal, although it is metal. But I think Morkborg calls itself metal, so take of that what you will. Oh, I remembered what else I wanted to say regarding Merkborg. I've not played it. Um, some people seem to say there's no rules, and other people seem to say they're great. Um, but I do think, contrary to your remark, that people don't play Merkborg. And, yeah, well, contrary to that claim, 
I think there's a lot of people who are playing Merc Borg and really liking it. Uh, you know, there's all these third-party releases, uh, all sorts of stuff going on, and of course it's 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 visual, but I think people are playing it, you know? I think they are. I think they are. Hey, Barney, thanks for that call. Also, folks, if you didn't realize, that call before the opening credits came from Barney's account, although I can't promise exactly who that caller was. But uh, other than, you know, being a caveman, <laughs> no mercy. Barney, I hear what you're saying, but have you ever met anybody in person that plays Morkborg? Are they just people on the internet? Are they bots? Are there just a bunch of bots on the internet playing the game? I don't know. Just because supplements sell, and I have seen a bunch of supplements kickstarted for Morkborg, it doesn't mean people are playing it. They're just collecting it for the art value and hanging it on their wall, right? I'm I'm just messing with you, man. I'm sure somebody may be playing it, although I kind of wonder how how many people are playing it and how often it's being played. Um. If you if people are are really playing Workboard like regularly playing it, please call in and let me know. I, I'm very curious to hear that. I did see it was run at Virtual Grog Meet, so I know at least one game of Workboard did happen. But aside from that, it's all just the internet, and can't believe everything you see on the internet, Barney. I I hate to break that to you. And we have another call from Joe. I didn't get a chance to listen to this one before the episode, so let let's just play it and see what he has to say. Jason. I could get into a lot of trouble for telling you this, but if you promise not to play it on your show, I'll explain it. In the year 1491, French sculptor and sometimes lover to King Charles VIII, Guy Lemon, finished his masterpiece known as Alev Lacorn. 1491 was a very important year, and Alev Lacorn was a very, very important sculpture. 91 minus 14 is 77. Seven is a number of power, yet when you combine it with another seven, boom! Thus was born Alev Lacorn. The following year, 1492, Alev Lacorn was smuggled onto the Nina and sent to the New World. Is there any doubt in your mind why there are 19 letters in the names Nina, Pinta, and Santa Maria? May the scales be lifted from your eyes, my friend. Oops. Um... Consider that you didn't hear that. Yeah. Uh, sorry. Uh, let's move on. Hey, Jason. Daniel from Edits Keep calling in to respond to Joe's response to that you didn't ask for about the virtual tabletops. <laughs> no, about the, the doing the math in your head. Yeah, I, I think that, like you said in your original uh, segment, that you need, you need to just change your character sheet so you can add that. I would not want to have to say, oh, no, well, it's, it says 16 there, but it's actually 18. That just... What's the point of the virtual character sheet? And also, uh, in some games, like I'm running Astonishing Swordsman and Sorcerer Hyporia, it like tells you specifically success or fail on things, right? So it might say fail, and then you're like, oh no, but I didn't fail because I got this. So yeah, I, you know, the whole point of the virtual tabletop is to do the math for me. So uh, I would just do what you originally said, which is modify the character sheet so you can put in that plus or minus uh, with each roll. Hey, Daniel, thank you for that call. And yeah, I think on the VTT, people do want the number the number that's rolled to be accurate because you can input your modifiers and have the die roll modified by it. So the final, you know, the number that pops on the screen is the right number. 
in person, of course, you can't do that. But I, I think of the VTT, people do expect that. I was maybe a little harsh on VTTs in that episode, to be honest. Um, th- there are times VTTs make sense. I, I know the game I recently missed of Dungeon Crawl Classics, they, they had a little bit of trouble because they didn't have the, they weren't using a VTT and they didn't have, I, I guess not all the players had the dice, the special dice for Dungeon Crawl Classics, which uses like D7s and things like that. So that was a little bit of a hassle for them. Um, so in certain cases, I can see where VTTs would be handy. Or in the case of Dungeon Crawl Classics, just go to the Purple Sorcerer app, which is amazing. Um, highly recommend everybody that it's even thinking about DCC, or even if you don't play DCC, get the Purple Sorcerer app. It's called the Crawler. So go check that out. Well worth it. it it's a great dice roller. In fact... That's the only dice roller I have on my phone is that Purple Sorcerer Crawler app. Highly recommend. Let me provide a little context for this next call. If you're familiar with D&D or most systems, your attributes like strength, intelligence, constitution, typically have a a numerical score and then a bonus number. So you might have strength of 10, bonus of 0, or strength of 15, bonus of plus 2, something like that. ICRPG gets rid of the numerical score and just uses the bonus. So in ICRPG, your strength might be zero or just plus one or plus two. Daniel said he didn't like that. But on Discord, he made a post saying he did not like roll under systems. So I asked him about that. And this is his, you know, if he doesn't like roll under systems, where like if you have a strength of 15 to pass, you'd have to roll under 15 on a 20-sided die. That's an example of a roll under system. So I asked Daniel if he doesn't like roll under systems, why he wants that number there instead of just the bonus, and he provided me an answer. So let's hear it. It is a uh, good question, and uh, it made me think about it. So there's two reasons I can think of off the top of my head. Number one, I just want to state that it's not that I don't like roll under mechanics; it's that I don't like it to be the only mechanic, basically like black hack, because I don't want everybody to rely on their ability scores too much. So one way would be I would use it for a roll under, right, which would be less often. But the other, just more direct thing to answer your question, a 15 has a plus one, right? But so does a 14. So if somebody with a 15 and a 14 both had an arm wrestling contest, who'd win, right? It's a little bit more granularity. Also, because of the way that 5e has you increase your ability scores, having odd and even numbers helps kind of balance out how you grow your character. Now, I know that uh, that's not how it works in ICRPG, but I'm saying if you're in 5e, which is uh, a hack-up, right? So... You know, that's why, because if you have a 14, right, then you need to score, add two points to it to get to 16. But if you had a 15, you only had to have one point. So that helps in character growth. The third reason, which is probably not as good, <laughs> but for anybody who plays any kind of D&D games, if you say to somebody, I have a 15 strength, or I have an 18 strength, or I have a 7 strength, they immediately understand what that means, because we're used to the game. If you say, I have a plus one in my strength, it doesn't come off the same. It just doesn't. So mentally, that's why I said it's a mental thing. I can understand a 15 strength much better than I can understand a plus one. The other thing, too, is that you have that whole range, what, 9 to 12, but it's plus zero, right? So that's a big difference, right, between 9 and 12. Now I'm talking old school games, not I mean. But, you know, so it really, that's why I think there, there needs to be some granularity somewhere, and that's where I like it. Uh, I don't even care about it. It's like uh, OD&D, no bonus for strength, right? But if you tell me a character has a 16 strength, I'm going to let them do a 
lot more than somebody with a nine strike, even though it doesn't actually say that in the rules. That's again a rulings over rules thing, and uh, I know someone following that. Okay, Daniel, that makes sense. So the issue really is the granularity. So at that point, what is the optimal granularity? Is it one to six, which is kind of well, actually I see RPG because you could potentially go negative in your tributes too. So, you, you know, is it, if you go negative down to negative six and positive up to positive six, say, that would give you a 12 range, right? In granularity, or is it 13? Anyway, math isn't my strong suit, but how granular do we want it? Would a system that works off of 2D6 for attributes be granular enough? And if 3D6 is, you know, 3 to 18 is good, then would a D20, would 1 to 20 be better? Or, or D30? Or, of course, the king of all systems, the D percentile, would we be better off with attribute scores that range from 1 to 100? Because it would provide that much more granularity. Plus, not only would the D and D players get it, because everybody understands percentages, everybody understands 70% or 60%. But people that have never played a role-playing game before will understand that D percentile score a lot better than they'll understand 15. Just curious. Daniel's next call is in reference to a conversation Joe Richter and I are having about spoilers and whether the GM telling the players the name of the monster is a spoiler or telling them the spell that an enemy caster is casting, not after it's cast, but during the casting, or if it you know, they get disrupted or interrupted during the casting attempt if you should tell them what the spell name was. So to the point of, I wasn't going to call in about this until you started responding to it, to the point of knowing what the spell is and stuff, I think the other place that's relevant is if somebody wants to do, let's say, counter spell. if you're playing, let's say, 5th edition. I'm pretty sure, I mean, it's very likely Pathfinder has that. And you would need to know, like, if you see the spell, you're like, oh, well, I'm not affected by that. I won't waste a counter spell. Or you might go, oh, that's a higher spell level. I have to expend more slots in my counter spell in order to make it work. So that spoiler is actually mechanically relevant uh, as far as spell casting. And I agree about the name of the monster. I find that I try not to say the name of the monster, but I'm not perfect at it. Um, I, I like the idea of just explaining what the monster looks like. But, you know, we all let it slip sometimes. But I think the spell, though, and, and that's like not even a flavor thing, that really is uh, relevant in the way the game is played. You know, or am I going to try to do a different reaction because I know what spell they're about to cast? Or that got stopped or whatever. So pretty good, pretty good ideas going on there. I like it. That's interesting, Daniel. The idea of counterspell and you know we didn't. I haven't played these Watsy versions of D and D, so I can't speak to that. But I, I would think maybe, and especially if they haven't finished the spell yet, I would think you'd need some kind of role. Maybe Pathfinder has a a skill for this, and maybe these other games have a skill for this spellcraft or something. I don't know or magic lore, arcane knowledge, or occult, or something. But I, I would think you would have to, the character would have to make a role to recognize the spell being cast. Unless they, maybe, if they have that spell themselves, maybe they would recognize it. But depending on how mechanical spell casting is in that world, are the hand motions the exact same every time it's cast, or does it pen caster to caster? Like in DCC, Dungeon Crawl Classics, to you and me, Russ, I could easily see that, you know, the casters might move differently and have slightly different things for the different, you know, each caster might be different. And the same thing with Savage Worlds. 
where, you know, you get to put different, um, I forget what the word is right now, but Savage Worlds, each caster decides what their spells look like and, and how they do it. So in those systems, you know, and a system like Barbarians Lemoria, they might look different depending on the caster, where in systems where they turn magic into science, like people want D&D to be, which is fine, and like The Witcher, right, The Witcher TV series, then the spells might look exactly the same because it's it's an exact science how to cast it, or like Harry Potter, right? So I, I wonder if if the if they're just starting the spell, if it's appropriate to make them roll to recognize the spell, or you just have to guess when you're creating your counter spell and hope that you make a strong enough counter spell. I don't know. What do people think about that? And again, I, I don't know anything about WotC D D, so I might be totally off base here. But that's kind of where my mind goes when we talk about Counterspell. What, what do you guys think? Now we're going to move from spellcasting and fantasy to hard reality in the far future year of 2020. We're going to talk about layering of armor in Cyberpunk 2020. Joe had posited that, Joe Richter had posited that, you know, characters would armor up all they could because why not? And there, there of course, are in-game reasons why not. But Daniel had some thoughts on that. So let's hear what he has to say. Oh, uh, so to call in about Joe's question, like, wouldn't that be the way you do it in the fiction? I mean, you said, yeah, you could do an undershirt vest and then also hard armor, but why wouldn't you do that? Or why don't they do it every day when they're running around? Because it's not comfortable. I mean, I would imagine that if you are playing with, I mean, I don't play cyberpunk, I don't know the rules, but if there is some kind of encumbrance rules or whatever, that's fine. But if that stuff's being hand-waved and you can just layer up armor, then that to me it doesn't isn't realistic. You wouldn't do it because it's uncomfortable. It would slow you down. It would throw off your aim. There's all kinds of reasons to not wear all kinds of layers of uh, clothing. I mean, just think about winter clothes. Forget about armor. Like if, you, if it's super cold out and you put on layers upon layer, you can hardly move your arms. I mean, that's going to be the same thing with this armor. So I don't think that people would walk around like that. Now, if they're about to go raid a place, that's different, you know? So I guess it really depends on the situation. But as far as just like walking around in it, I don't think you'd layer armor if, if you would be. So I got cut off, so I don't know where that was. But I guess my point is that, yeah, if you're about to go raid something like a SWAT team, you're going to put on the highest amount of armor possible, especially if, uh, you know, you know you've got combatants in there with weapons, right? But if you're trying to sneak in to something like you're a spy or whatever, you know, you would probably not want to wear all kinds of heavy bulky things. So it kind of depends on how people are, are playing it, you know. And I think that also comes down to, again, certain GMs don't follow or hand wave certain rules and thinking it won't affect other things. But that's a good example of if there is an encumbrance rule, if that's being hand waved, that's a big deal right there. Daniel, you're right about layering armor. And the Cyberpunk 2020 game does address this, actually. So on page 101 of the book, the core book, there's this, which is in the combat section, they talk about layering armor. And I'm just going to read this directly out of the book. Of course, it's written by Mike Pondsmith, one of the great RPG writers. Layering armor. What a concept, you think? Shrugging into a bulletproof t-shirt, bulletproof vest, and a Kevlar armor jacket. Theoretically, one should be able to layer protection upon itself until he becomes invulnerable. Wrong-o. First of all, let's look at reality. If the average cop could stack layers of armor on himself before tackling a domestic disturbance call, you can bet he'd do it. But he doesn't, because it just isn't practical. Here's why. 
when you layer flak jackets, you aren't invulnerable, you're just immobile. While modern armor isn't as heavy as old-fashioned armor plate, it's very encumbering from the movement angle. Straps, buckles, padding, and stiff plastic add up to restrict arm movement, chafe the torso, and weigh down the legs. Pillsbury Doughboy padded arms don't lift guns very well, and well-stuffed legs aren't much for bending, climbing, and running. For this reason, every armor type in Friday Night Firefight, the combat system for Cyberpunk 2020, has an encumbrance value. When wearing body armor, add up the total of the encumbrance values listed on the armor table and subtract this from your character's reflex stat. Even if you're cybered up, a lot of armor is going to cost you. The reflex stat in Cyberpunk 2020 is how you determine who's going to go first. It, it, it tied into initiative. And solos, which are your bodyguards and your, you know, your heavy hitters in this in this world, the solo gets to add their level to the reflex. And that's their special ability. So they pretty much always go first in the firefights. And if you're wearing armor, you, the thing is, in, in combat with guns, you want to fire first, okay? Because the damage, you know, whoever shoots first, that damage is taken into account before the other people shoot, right? So it's not all simultaneous. And who shoots first often wins. So, yeah, it, this it does take into account. And actually, there's another rule that they do in here where you can only layer a maximum of three layers of armor at any one time. And no more one of those layers can be hard armor. They they break things down into hard armor and soft armor. Uh, so your your vest that, you know, cops wear under the shirt, that's soft armor where, you know, like a flat jacket, you know, like riot armor is hard armor. So you can only have one hard armor and you can have two other la three layers total. And when you add these additional layers, they get additional encumbrance penalties too, because they're really trying to discourage players from doing this layering armor thing. So the rules do take this into account. The cyberpunk 2020 fire Friday night firefight rules are really cool. They're, um, you know, mind you, this is based on eighties FBI statistics for the most part. They, they, they went and looked at FBI statistics and shootouts and things like that. And used all that to try to make a realistic gun combat system. And if you ever go to Sesrakowski's videos, it, well, I linked one in in last in my last um, podcast where I talked to Joe when we created the character. You know, he they talk about how awesome. You know, Seth talks about how awesome the system is. And you know, the thing about Cyberpunk 2020 is people still play it to this day because the shootout rules are so awesome. Um, but yeah, good, good call on layer and armor, Daniel. And yeah, no disagreement here. Speaking of Cyberpunk 2020, we just, Joe and I just recorded an episode of that. And it was a great episode. I highly recommend you go listen if you haven't. Carl has listened, and Carl calls in about it. So let's hear what Carl has to say. Hey, guys. Really enjoyable episode. I really liked the Life Pass system here in Cyberpunk 2020 and uh, the choices that you can make, and then, of course, leaving it up to random. I think the only, unfortunately, like the only Cyberpunk 2020 product I still have, must have gotten rid of many of them, is Deep Space, which is a reprint 
of near orbit, but has all, you know, with more stuff in it, but it has everything to run Cyberpunk 2020 in space, which would be kind of neat. I guess it would be, I think, all the way up to Mars. Actually, what do they say? Uh, oh, gas giant stuff. So, yeah. So you can go to Mars. You can take your rocker boy to Mars. Well, Carl, after Deadlands, we want to switch to Cyberpunk 2020 Thursday nights. Happy to run it. It's a fun game. Um, books or PDFs are readily available. You know, they're on sale and drive through. You can get hard copies. You can get the, the books for cheap. There are tons of copies out there. The thing in space would be cool for a mission or to, to go out there occasionally. I don't think I'd want to play a whole game in space, to be honest, because that's not what cyberpunk is to me at all. Now you're moving something else. But if for one um, job, your your crew had to go up into space, that would be kind of cool. I'd be down for that. Hey, Jason, it's Arlen. Really enjoyed your Cyberpunk 2020 character creation segment with Joe. It was a lot of fun to listen to that character coming together. You know, really interesting. The whole life path system was really cool. I have some other games from uh, Artalsorian, but... um, I don't think I have Cyberpunk 2020, but anyway, um, I really like the the sort of life path stuff that they do in their um, games. So that's really cool. Um, but yeah, I uh, I thought it was a lot of fun. So keep on keeping on, and I will talk to you soon. Thank you for the kind words, Arlen. If you guys aren't checking out Arlen's podcast live from Pelham Woods Wasteland, maybe you'd prefer to check out his YouTube channel which is also called Live from Pelham's Wasteland. He reviews lots of neat games, and he does some solo plays over on his YouTube channel, and Arlen runs a lot of neat games. So thank you for the feedback. Really appreciate it. And now we have a contribution from Down Under, Brian from the Have to Look That Up podcast. Let's hear what he has to say. Aloha, Jason. Actually, g'day, Jason. And uh, I'll include Joe because I just started listening to your Cyberpunk 2020 character creation collaboration with him. I'm only about 10, no, maybe 20 minutes through is the second one I picked up on, on my run and already loving it. I, I need to, I missed this completely. I know I've talked on my podcast, but I really need to get myself a, probably an online game considering where I am, but pretty excited. So I'm going to go back to finish it. One, actually two things to note. Yeah, I was the same. I did not realize, uh, you know, Mike Ponsmith's, uh, ancestry you know background i mean i think it's fantastic the game is fantastic so i'm glad that it gets a little bit more of a of a of a a celebration just because no not that it needs to be a big deal but i think given everything that's going on right now it's good to make it a big deal also because it's an awesome game so for part two the second thing (laughs) i'm not very far through um I, I realized I enjoy uh, your your beer recommendations, especially being now in Australia, where uh, truth be told, fantastic beer and a blossoming craft beer scene a bit behind the U.S. and maybe even some European countries. But it's been in the explosion period, uh, definitely over the last five years that I've, I've been here. Now that I'm here, um, it, it wasn't like this even you know five ten years ago, and so it is pretty neat to see here. And what I may start to do when I actually get back to Todd is include some, maybe some some notes on on what I'm drinking, just just in the interest of uh, you know culinary education and international outreach. 
Um, I don't know how many of them will be available in the U.S., but uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna do it. So hopefully you enjoy. Cheers, man. Hey Brian, thank you for those kind words. Yeah, I would love to hear beer recommendations with your episodes. That'd be very cool. And you, you know, if we can work the time difference out, I've played with people down there before. Who knows? Maybe maybe you, me, and Joe can set up a Cyberpunk 2020 game online. Stranger things have happened. This next call from Paul isn't really about my conversation with Joe. This harkens back to an earlier episode where Joe responded to Paul's reading of Snow Crash uh, by Neil Stevenson, a cyberpunk novel. So let's listen to what Paul has to say to Joe. So it's interesting that Joe uh, called out uh, the chrome as one of the things missing from modern cyberpunk uh, right after talking about Snow Crash. And Snow Crash is interesting because it's sort of one of the least chrome books out there. And I mean, there may be some things I'm not thinking of, but it seems to me like Snow Crash was sort of the last fully of its time uh, cyberpunk novel. It was, you know, very au courant for that moment in the 90s. And after that, cyberpunk became almost a retrofuturist genre. I, I mean, so that future vision of, you know, chrome uh, dystopias in, that we had in the 80s is, from our perspective now, sort of like uh, the visions of, you know, the atomic-powered rocket ships of the 40s and 50s. So I am enjoying the discussion. I did almost call in with another uh, uh, reading from Snow Crash for the bit where uh, hero protagonist gets on his motorcycle, but it uh, was a little thinner than I than I had remembered it being, and sadly probably wouldn't make for for great podcast audio. The description of the smart wheels on the motorcycle and the uh, cervical airbags on the uh, uh, riding suit are pretty damn cool, though. Fair enough, Paul. And that brings up an interesting point. Maybe in a future segment of Vulcan Diaries, I will discuss the state, the modern state of motorcycle safety gear, because I think there's some interesting developments and some interesting things as technology from the track gets into the civilian world. But for now, let's leave the far future of 2020 behind and change subjects. Now we're gonna to switch to a series of calls that relate to our segment where we discussed how to be metal. First up is BJ of the Arcane Alienist. His world is the mythic world of Erd, which is definitely something you would hear in a metal ballad. Take it away, BJ. Jason, I think if you're wanting to know what makes for metal, <clears throat> beyond just lists of music or, or album covers or anything like that, it can all be summed up in the words, hell yeah, brother. I mean, metal, when I think about metal heroes or medical art characters in a role-playing game, they're just going to be down for whatever happens. You know, that doesn't mean they don't have a range of emotions or motivations, but it's just... Whatever happens, we're just going to face it head on and just dive in and do it. You know, and if we die, we die. If we live, we live. It's just, you know, but it's sort of, you know, being metal, I guess it's almost like metal, M-E-T-T-L-E. You know, you have that that gusto, that, that iron will to just plunge forward and face reality. Uh, 
come hell or high water. So that's what I think of with a metal role-playing game. I'm with you, BJ. And, you know, if that was a forum post, that call would have been a 10 out of 10. But I've got to deduct a couple points. So I'm going to help you make the perfect call next time. And it all comes on, on in your voice here. So repeat after me. Once you can master that, BJ, you'll be making perfect calls, even if you're talking nonsense. Just remember our motto, strike first, strike hard, no mercy. Oh, yeah, brother. Hey, Jason, Daniel from Man's Keep. Uh, thank you for all the advice on the metal um, and Carl and also Joe. I'm, I'm in here right now tearing all the sleeves off my shirt. I'm listening to some Iron Maiden. I'm getting ready. Um, now, if I run like... Uh, what, maybe Tales from the Loop? No, that's probably not metal enough. We, we need something really metal so we can we can smash things and, and turn it up to 11. Yeah, all right, I'll work on this. Maybe I'll do, ooh, I can run that 007 James Bond game. James Bond, metal. There's a link in the show notes to that metal cover, the James Bond theme. It's on a YouTube channel called Bry Jovi, B-R-Y-J-O-V-I. And there's metal themes of all kinds of stuff there, you know, including the Lord of the Rings theme music, which, you know, if you didn't know you need that in your life, go check it out. Anyhow, if you want a little more advice on running metal games, I got another call about that. Let's go over to Taylor from Cleric Square Ringmail. Jason. What is metal in life? To thrash in the presence of your enemies? To see them riff before you? And to hear the ululation of the rhythms? Metal is a state of tone and infusion. Expose yourself when authoring or preparing for your adventures. Make sure to immerse yourself in music that will match the tone. Perhaps something soothing, like Motorhead. Metal is the taste of blood in your teeth. If your game is anemic, like when your players, having bought a new supplement, want to take their characters to prom. Consider an iron supplement. But not without sufficient dietary fiber. 
that would not be very metal. Metal can be beheld. Make sure there are plenty of skulls in your game, at least as many as there are players. External skulls. Most players bring a skull with them, hidden behind a flesh veil. Maybe use a skull dice cup. Metal is in your sweat. Bathe yourself in it. An oil for a blade. Coat your dice with mineral oil. Minerals are metal, after all. Infusing your game notes might help too, but will smudge the print. Metal is something you can feel. Run it up your skin. Let the goosebumps pulse. Tablature for the guitar riff on your flesh. Consider running online a mechanical keyboard or mouse made of iron with spikes on it. Metal is a state for your brain. Long hair can help, but I recommend a helmet. That will keep all of the metal inside. Horns on the helmet may help. They can be used to spear any metal thoughts that may escape. And ask yourself, can you be metal? If you reply no, maybe you can't. There you go, Daniel. Get yourself one of those skull mugs. If you want an example of a metal game, listen to James Crawl's subclass act in his second to latest episode. I'll put a link in the show notes. He was doing a one-shot of the system Warlock. And in the second episode, you have, you know, Zweihander, two-handed swords, rippling with lightning, rains of blood, the, the bloated ones, a e evil encroachment on the city. Ratman, all kinds of cool stuff. So listen to that, and, and, and you definitely feel the metal vibes just emanating out of that podcast. So again, link is in the show notes. Now we're going to switch gears again and go to Carl, the metalologist himself. Hey man, Morrow Project sounds really cool. Should we add it to the list? Is there another type of game you could run that's like that? Ooh, I do have one that's like that could be cool like that where people are put in stasis and they wake up and everything is borked to hell. Metamorphosis Alpha, that'd be kind of fun to do too, right? Anyway, I uh, can't wait till you run it. Haha. -ha. Hey, I would be down to run Moro Project. The problem with Moro Project is you can't legally get copies of the PDFs. In fact, there never were PDFs. This is a game that, you know, way predated that. And I th there was a fourth edition that was kickstarted maybe 10 years ago, something like that. 
Um, I've got that, but I don't know that that's available out there as a PDF. I guess we could look. If the fourth edition's out there, I'd, I'd have to look. I didn't really, I kind of got a little disillusioned during the campaign. It was put out by like the son of one of the creators or something like that. Um, but we could potentially look at the fourth edition. You know, we I played the original edition back then, but like I say, there's no way to get you the really the books. And it is a really intensive system as far as number crunching. So the players really do need copies of the books, I think. I mean, you could do it without that if you had me do it all, but it'd be a lot of work on the DM. And I, I don't know that that's really what I'm interested in doing. I think I'd rather have you guys track your stuff. <laughs> to be honest, I'm sure that's something that you can relate to as you're running Twilight 2000, which that system's much lighter than, um, you, you know, than Moral Project is. Oh, I did figure out a game that's like that, that has that kind of vibe, and that's Meta uh, Mutant Year Zero, where you're trying to rebuild and you have a base and things like that, and you can do, there's various factions you can do from Mutant Year Zero. You can do um, mutants, you can do uplifted animals, you could do robots, which would be really fucking fun, I think, and you can do uh, people that are still living in orbit. So um, Mutant Year Zero, maybe that one, hmm. I'll dig into it now that I feel like I'm comfortable with the Mutant Year Zero type engine, like um, Twilight 2000. Maybe I'll have to study that out a little bit. We'll see. You can even mix and match. There's ways you can mix and match uplift animals with mutants, uh, for example. That'd be kind of neat. See, at that point, I think I'd rather play Gamma World, either second edition, which is what I played back in the day, or first edition, or um, Mutant Future, which is a Labyrinth Lord you know, version of Gamma World. I'd, I'd be down to play either of those. There you go. There's a D&D type game that I'm, I'm willing to play, Carl. Jump on it. Hey, I just thought of something in my listening to my rambly rambly with writing on the wall in the background. That video is pretty metal. But uh, as an aside, Jason, you were talking about gore. And um, I would suggest watching Spartacus if you can take that gore because that one... They really overemphasize the blood and arms get chopping off and heads get chopping off and eyes popping out. It's pretty damn gory. So it also has very mature themes and a lot of adult situations. So if that's not for you or if that uh, it does not appeal to you, well, it is Roman times. What I thought was fascinating about Spartacus was the dialogue. It was surprisingly had a meter to it throughout and consistently along with the gore and well the sex but uh it's a good show i really enjoyed it i've heard good things about spartacus uh, not just from you although n numerous times from you and you know i think i watched some of it if i remember right maybe when it came out but i just don't have a whole lot of time to watch series these days i maybe i'll catch some highlights on youtube i'll tell you another series that was pretty brutal the fight scenes was Banshee. So if you ever watch, you want to watch Banshee, the plot's ridiculous, but the fight scenes, it, it, you know, it was a, a Skinamax, I'm sorry, Cinemax show, and they had really brutal fight scenes in every episode, and then you had mandatory, you know, sex in every episode because it was Cinemax. But Banshee has some violent fight scenes in it. The other place to go look for some really violent fight scenes, some gory fight scenes, are the films by S. Craig Zaylor, Z-A-H-L-E-R. Um, he made Bone Tomahawk. 
brawling cell block 99, dragged across concrete. Um, the fights in those movies are brutal. You know, brawling cell block 99, especially has a lot of hand-to-hand fights in there that, that are just brutal. Um, if you're into that kind of thing. Okay, that's the end of the RPG segment. The rest of the show is Vulcan Diaries, which is really a short one today. But in case you can't stand that and you want to get out of here, I want to thank all you listeners for tuning into the show, no matter how long you listen. I really appreciate it. I want to thank all my callers for calling in. Without your calls, this would be a much different show. I want to thank Ray Otis for the coffee cup clip art, TJ Drennan for all the wonderful music he provides, the transitions, the intro, outro, the, the call-in song, all that stuff. And if you want to take part in the conversation, it's easy. You can leave a message on the Anchor app. You can send an email to nerdsrpgvarietycast at gmail.com. If you attach an audio file, I can play it on the air and make you famous. Otherwise, I can read your message on the air. If you are on Discord, you can reach out to me. I'm on a bunch of different Discords. Reach out to me on Discord, and I can, you know, you can either send me an audio file that way, or I can just read your message. And if you're content just to listen, that's cool too. So again, thank you. And now we're going to move into a very short Vulcan Diaries. Hey, Jason. I know my keep calling in. Thank you for. Uh answering or giving me some information, more information about the motorcycle and the speed and everything. I think that sounds about right then. I mean, you, you do want to pass people as quickly as possible, clearly, even if you're in a car, right? You don't want to be dragging out beside them, especially in a two-lane highway. So, uh, yeah, maybe two, maybe 20 miles an hour is right. I'm not really sure. Um, as far as scooters, yeah, I agree. I mean, I had a friend, a couple of friends, actually, who've had scooters that uh, lived in, like, Brooklyn. I mean, I live, as I've said before, I live 50 miles from Manhattan, so I would need an actual motorcycle. But, uh, yeah, if I lived, like, where I could just commute inside the, the urban environment, a scooter would be really nice. So, yep. In any case, thank you. I'll talk to you soon. No worries, Daniel. I'm enjoying the conversation. And I should have mentioned this last episode when I was talking about speed limiters and whatnot, or I guess two episodes ago. When, when, whenever I talked about speed limiters, I actually got I, – I did a little bit of internet research, but one of the things I looked at was a video on a YouTube channel done by Stuart Fillingham. And I'll include a link to that video in the show notes. And that's where he talks about the black boxes and the potential for people to be spied on by that. I don't know how accurate that is. but That's kind of where I went to for that information. Hey, Jason. Uh, thanks a lot for the answering the question. Or for your, thank your friend for me uh, from the railroad there for answering the questions. A lot of good information there. Yeah. I mean, again, I don't know anything about it. I'm just very curious, so uh, that's very cool. I mean, hopefully whatever changes could happen that would make it possible will eventually happen uh, one way or the other, right? And who knows how those things work out. So, uh, again, uh, thank you, friend, for me. Thank you for taking the time to answer the questions, and I'll talk to you later. Hey, Daniel, no problem. I would definitely pass your thanks on to them. In fact, Daniel, I have some more comments from my secret commentator because they wanted to talk about speed limiters in the trucking industry, a conversation we had in a previous Vulcan Diary. So they said the reason that the little guys, the small truck companies, are impacted by speed limiters more than the big guys is that in the trucking industry, the big guys all have contracts with rail providers. Ah, see, this rail provider conspiracy. Yeah, actually, it's not conspiracy. It's just business. 
if you look at J.B. Hunt or Snyder, which are big trucking companies, they will pick something up from the port in Los Angeles, cart it five miles to a railroad, railroad junction, and then it'll it'll be shipped to San Francisco, or it will just get hauled to say Montana, and then Snyder will pick it up again and take it the last mile. The little guys don't have those contracts with the rail companies. So they actually have to abide by the 65 mile an hour speed limit on the interstate where the big boys would have less exposure. Also, talking about tracking vehicles, look up electric logbooks. For the past 10 years or so, vehicles over, I think, 12,000 pounds have had to have a system in it. The GPS tracks where they are, how fast they go, and the times the driver clocked in and clocked out. So in terms of measuring and observing, the industry norm at this point in logistics is to use the black box to track these things. So that's interesting. Again, that, those are his words, not mine, but they're pretty spot on. Yeah, I knew about black boxes and the, you know, the limits on truck drivers and, you know, forcing them only drive so many hours, things like that. My, my informant also says he would be curious if Google, Apple, etc., actually keep map data that the government would want. Cell companies don't track your calls or texts unless ordered to by warrant because it's cheaper to do that way than collect it and deal with perpetual subpoenas, which actually makes sense. So anyway, there's just a few other comments. And we'll finish the episode out with a final call from Paul. I've been enjoying the discussion of trains. Uh, I, I was never a huge fan of trains. I mean, I like them well enough, uh, but my wife absolutely loves them. And since then, we've done a lot of train-related activities together, uh, going to museums and so on, and actually taking a, a steam class. We're learning to operate uh, old steam engines, like steam traction engines, uh, but also the, the place we went to had a uh, small-scale steam locomotive that you got to uh, help fire up and drive as part of the event. So all very cool stuff, uh, but recently I've actually discovered that train simulation is pretty darn cool. And here I'm talking train simulation software on a computer where you have a first-person view from a train cab and train controls that you could actually buy uh, sort of USB controllers modeled after you know, train control throttles and brake levers and so on that add to the experience. So the first time I saw Microsoft's train simulator, and this was like when it came out in 2001, uh, I thought it was like the dumbest thing I had ever seen. You just like go forward? Like what is the actual point here? Um, but if you look at sort of the modern, you know, train simulator 2021 or train sim world, uh, they are actually doing some really interesting stuff and, you know, learning about the signaling, uh, the, the really well-modeled cabs of the trains, and then sort of figuring out the you know, how to work the various types of brakes and the controls is actually pretty darn cool. And I have spent a lot of time ferrying freight through the uh, Pennsylvania countrysides and doing some uh, passenger pickup and delivery in London. So never thought that I would enjoy train simulation, but it's actually pretty interesting. And uh, my wife enjoys it too. So uh, anyway, enjoying the transportation discussion. Thank you so much for sharing that, Paul. Very cool. My dad's really into steam trains. Uh, he, he never did it as a job or anything, but he's always enjoyed steam trains and does model railroading. We've um, 
you know, he does really big railroad layouts and there's ways you can make the, the steam, the model steam engines blow smoke. The little engines will have puffs of smoke coming out of them. We, we've been up to Strasburg. I think it's Strasburg, the train museum there in Amish country out there by Lancaster. We've been out there a number of times, um, ridden the steam train there and got, you know, looked at all the trains out there and all really neat stuff. But again, it's been many years since I've been out there. But yeah, good memories. Thank, thank you again for sharing. Okay, that's it, folks. If you want to take part in these conversations, then reach out to me. If not, I'm glad you're out there listening. Talk to you next time. Who's on the phone? Joking about your spouse, but the operator's screaming it's coming from inside the house. What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? Well, the audience is pretty sure he took a pretty head, and the only question left is if I better shoot him dead. Bring on the gold, bring on the gold. I want some more, bring on the gold. Is a dustman and your moil is quite a tipper And I'm assuming that your partner back there in the wood chipper Don't look away